Hello there, and welcome to another Discast. This one I've been looking forward to for quite a while. It's on a subject I'm fascinated by, and I think is itself just inherently fascinating because it tells us so much about human nature and society and helps us better understand the interaction of our bodily selves with our social order. And that's fascinating in itself to me. I don't, I don't care what agenda you bring. I think understanding the human condition is always better than not understanding it. And adding as much as we can to the understanding is always important. Anyway, that's just a preamble to say this book is called T, The Story of Testosterone, the Hormone that Dominates and Divides Us. It's by Carol Hooven. And Carol is a lecturer and co-director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. She earned her PhD at Harvard, studying sex differences and testosterone, and has taught there ever since. She's a huge teaching star, and I can imagine why, reading this book, uh, students love her. It is, and I I really do want to recommend it, it is such a smart, balanced, interesting, humane, and rigorous book that pulls no punches about exactly what we're dealing with with testosterone and helps us understand better, I think, the relations between men and women, the, the outcomes in society about, between men and women. It helps us understand homosexuality, transgenderism, all sorts of aspects of our lives that it can inform. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. And that's what I hope Carol is, is, is prepared to talk about. I'm delighted to have you. Come on, Carol. Thank you so much for visiting the DishCast. Andrew, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all of those kind words. I so appreciate it, and I'm so excited to be here because I know what a fan of the hormone you are, <laughs> and I appreciate all the attention that you have given to it. It deserves it. I think so too. And and um, but let me let me ask you a little about your background, which I do mostly on these podcasts to start with, because. You didn't grow up thinking you were going to become a, a professor of, of, of evolutionary biology or be interested in testosterone, right? So tell me, tell me how you stumbled backwards into this, into this uh, way of life and, and st- field of study. So do you want the long story? Yeah, we have, a long, okay. we have, we have time. The long story. Okay. I'm going to tell the long story because I think it's important to contextualize where people like me who've kind of found their passion relatively later in life, what my path was. And because I teach college students, I advise college students. Many of them are confused and worried about where they're going in their lives uh, and whether they're good enough to get where they want to go. So I'll just start out by saying I grew up uh, outside of Boston in a suburb, uh, pretty well-to-do suburb. um, But I did not have a lot of parental oversight. Uh, My three brothers and I didn't have a lot of parental oversight. And I pretty much blew off high school. I was completely uninterested, uninspired, had a lot of energy. Uh, I got into a little bit of trouble here and there. I had some painful experiences with men and sexual assault, like probably most Uh, girls my age did if they stayed out all night and got, you know, completely obliterated. Uh, So yeah, in in answering your question, no, I did not think that this is where I would end up uh, intellectually or, you know, personally. 
Um, it just wasn't on my radar. And it took me a long time to get to a place where I could sort of focus my intellectual curiosity, but also have the confidence and maturity to pursue what I really found so inspiring, which is the evolutionary and just biological basis of human nature and ultimately sex differences. Um, so yeah, I started out with a kind of discombobulated, uh, I would say early education, which is totally different from that of most of the students I teach who were, you know, superstars all the way through. And that just was not me. I went to Antioch College, which was an incredibly transformative experience for me personally and intellectually. And that sort of that experience did both of those things that I mentioned earlier. It helped me to focus um, myself intellectually, but also it has a co-op program and I lived in different parts of the world and had these incredible experiences. And travel for me has been a really important part of my personal development and, and, and developing intellectual curiosity about human differences and the role of uh, ecological variation in different cultures and environments all over the planet. Um, and also reading Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene. And so after 10 years after I graduated from college and I just had a regular job in software. Um, and that was one I got in you know, 1988. So I just wanted to work with computers. And, um, and then finally, I uh, ended up quitting my job and applying to Harvard to go work with uh, Richard Wrangham, who was a who is a primatologist who'd written a book about the evolution of male aggression. And his work had was on chimpanzees. And I thought that was what a cool way to understand where human, humans come from or what the forces that shape us, you know, the evolutionary and biological forces. So I got rejected. Uh, I didn't get in to Harvard because I had no relevant experience. And I figured out that I needed to go get some. Uh, and I came back up to Harvard and I met Richard and pestered him. And he finally said, okay, you can go out to Uganda and manage my chimp research site for a year and learn to do some research. And that was the greatest opportunity. Uh, You're telling me that must, have, that must have been revelatory. I mean, <clears throat> to be yeah. dropped in the middle of Uganda running a, a chimp camp with no previous experience. Uh, how, I mean, tell me, tell us about that. Like, So that, yeah, it was, you know, I had already traveled a lot on my own, just been backpacking and camping out in the middle of nowhere. So I wasn't totally unfamiliar with being in places that were strange to me and where nobody spoke my language. Um, but going yeah going out to western uganda in the middle of the civil war was um a little bit scary and particularly for my family and friends who worried about the area of the world that i was going to and that violence that kind of and that surrounded me while i was there did help to um shape my interest in sex differences and aggression and other behaviors so i learned to do some research while i was there and and hiked around the forest observing chimps and that experience. So I hadn't been interested specifically in hormones or sex differences prior to that experience, but I huh. was completely blown away. You know, I just had, first of all, this vague idea that I wanted to understand the evolutionary origins of human behavior. 
And, but after spending that much time with the chimps, anyone who spends that much time with wild chimps, uh, I think, can not fail to come away from it being convinced that human sex differences have their roots in evolution, sexual selection, genes, hormones, you know, and of course, even culture plays a role even in chimpanzees and the way they behave and in the um, different ecologies of different forests that they're in. And of course, it plays a role in human sex differences. It plays a very strong role. Uh, but there was just no denying that the behavior of the males and females in chimpanzees in many ways parallels the behavior of human males and females and in really interesting ways. And of course, we're humans and we have huge brains and we can reflect on our own behavior and create um, cultural norms that shape the way we express our natures. Um, but I became obsessed with testosterone after and spending you, that time with the chimps. One of the uh, moments that was quite gripping in your book is when you witnessed what would appear to us to be the most savage a horrible attack by a male chimp on one of his harem uh, of, of, of female chimps that, 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 and as someone who had presumably also survived a sexual assault already, that must tell us what that was like. What happened? Yeah. So I should just make clear, first of all, there was no um, sexual component that I could see. However, okay. ultimately what I learned is that the purpose in chimpanzees of male on female aggression appears to be an attempts uh, subconsciously, of course, attempts by the male to control access to uh, mating opportunities. So it's basically the male saying, look, you're mine and I'm gonna kind of, in a sense, beat you into submission. You will submit to me in the future um, sexually. And so, it's disturbing that that uh, kind of research suggests maybe something disturbing about the sources of male and female aggression on humans. What, it doesn't mean that that's a correct hypothesis, but no, no, no. Um, but it's, it must have been a very. I mean, clearly from the book too, is a very visceral experience. Yeah. That I kind of I can imagine because it was quite brutal. Did anything prompt the male chimp to suddenly? unleash this hideous amount of violence and, and, and tell us what that was like. I mean, he, he yeah. beat this poor chimp for, for quite a while. Yeah, I can tell what that was like for me. So uh, I had been there um, maybe six or seven months by that point. I can't remember how long it was. And I'd seen lots of male-on-female violence, lots of male-male aggression, but nothing so severe, nothing so prolonged. The males routinely uh, beat up the females and the, especially the juvenile males as they're trying to advance in the dominance ranks will first start trying to dominate the females. First they'll dominate the littler, the littler ones then they try to dominate the females and then they try to see what they can do with the uh, dominant males. So there's you know, a hierarchy and the adult males are dominant to the adult females. And one of the ways that they keep the females, quote, in line is through physical aggression. However, I had never seen a prolonged, severe beating like I saw this one day. So I was just out with the chimps. It was a beautiful day uh, out in the, you know, it's basically a jungle. And uh, we're in the 
very secluded area and there was this large downed tree. And so I had broken off from the main party that I had been following to follow Emoso because he's, he's the dominant male. And whenever I was following Emoso, I knew that there would be a lot of excitement because he was a big dominant kind of mean chimp. So not all the dominant males were sort of as kind of nasty as he was. He seemed grumpy and pretty aggressive. Um, so he had left the main party with Utamba, the female, and her two little kids, her little children, um, one of whom was three. And then she also had uh, 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 another female, I think, under one uh, year old. And so they were Utamba. Were they, were they born of Isomo, if that was his name? Were, were they the kids don't, of? I don't uh, know the exact Okay. Uh, I don't know the paternity for sure of those kids. Okay. It's likely because he was the he was the dominant male. So it's it's more likely. It's you know not assured because there's a lot of competition for mates um, mm -hmm. across all the dominant males. So I was really relaxed. I was just sitting there watching, leaning against a tree with my notebook, taking notes with uh, one of my field assistants, so one of the Ugandan field assistants, watching. Utamba groom Imoso, and it was just very peaceful and relaxed. And suddenly, I really cannot think of what prompted him to change from just what seemed like relaxing in this peaceful scene to what happens is when the when the males start getting aggressive, they might just be sitting there looking like they're calm, but they're they get pilo erect, which means their fur stands up on end, and they look huge. When that happens, it really makes them look much bigger than huh. they had previously. So his first stands on end, and I knew something was then going to happen. But he stood up and just started punching her. She started screaming, clinging her baby, um, sort of hovering over her baby and clinging her baby to her to protect her baby. And he just started really ruthlessly beating her. And uh, it, I, I mean... I described this in detail in the book, but it lasted for nine minutes and it was pretty severe. And he ended up hitting her with a stick, which evidently that kind of weapon use had not been seen uh, in wild chimpanzees before. So it ended up, there was this article in Time Magazine on what had happened. Um, but the, and the, the title of the article in Time Magazine was Wife Beaters of Kibali. So obviously, you know, that was anthropomorphic and probably unjustified. However, there were undeniable parallels to something like domestic abuse and male control of female sexuality. It doesn't just happen in humans. It happens in non-human animals, too. And what but is... But it's also, you know, it's fascinating to watch that in a very close cousin in terms of our... Yes. Uh, Genetics. And, and I mean, it's funny. I, one of the, my favorite things to do in Washington is to go to the Great Ape House, which is uh, in the, in the National Zoo, and just hang out. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's so something about, the, <laughs> so to speak, yeah, there's something about the way those apes just hang out with each other. They sit, they read, they scratch each other. They, and I'm just sitting there too. And I just feel temporarily you know, part of the gang in a way. And I know that's, I'm, that I'm being anthropomorphic extremely, but but to see in other species that are so close to us things that are kind of uncanny echoes of little things that we do, obviously there is a universe of difference between our culture and chimps. But nonetheless, there's, there's things you can't not see. And you, and you see them in a way you wouldn't see them in a 
bird species or any other kind of species. Um, so obviously, something called testosterone is clearly part, at least, the origins of that kind of insane and really horrible violence. Um, now, we didn't know that for a long time, of course. How did we first discover testosterone? Well, there were theories before that of why men and women were different or why men had extra aggression and so on and so forth. And we had religious ideas of that. And we had all sorts of understandings of why men are like men and women are like women. And, and yet no one quite had the, 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 the essence of it until, until really quite recently, like 150 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, before I answer that question, I just want to go back to your beautiful description of feeling ape-like because we are apes, you know, when you were around chimps, because I want us not to forget. So I of course had that feeling with the chimps, but I just want to give a shout out to the females because when I hung out with the females, I really, I hadn't even had a kid yet. Um, but it really was a different atmosphere and it was much mm -hmm. more peaceful and it was females traveling together with their offspring. There's just mm -hmm. a lot of lightness and play and what looks like a lot of love and bonding and care that looks very human-like. So there, there was that contrast between the sexes. It doesn't mean that the females are never aggressive or that the males are never nurturing and loving. They are. But there are, you know, these differences on average that were so human-like to me. It was just, it's just very, very hard to deny. Um, so in terms of the long history of testosterone and how we came to appreciate its power in explaining basically masculinity, there's a really, really long, interesting history. So I'm not going to go back to... Aristotle, but we can uh, start by looking at the uh, knowledge that was derived from castration. And so there was castration in humans, in human castrati, for instance, um, in Europe, who were um, boys who were castrated so that they would be able to retain their soprano voices since women were not allowed to sing in choirs. And the changes that castrating males had, uh, say just taken the uh, castrati or in the eunuchs in ancient China, those changes looked like a type of feminization. So there's still, um, so the voice, obviously if there's castration prior to puberty, the voice fails to deepen, uh, aggression tends to be lower, libido is dampened, and then there's all kinds of physical changes. But there was no knowledge of what it was specifically about the testicles or how the testicles conferred what I'm just for now going to call um, these masculine traits until the early 1900s. You know, and that was when um, the mid, early to mid 1900s, when testosterone was finally identified. But there's a long series of um, events. One of the most important was in the mid 1800s, and that was this guy uh, by this guy, this researcher Arnold Arnold Berthold, who castrated chickens and then implanted the testes into the abdomen of another chicken to in the the attempt to determine whether the testes masculinized 
roosters in the way, you know, cock-a-doodle doing and their bright, um, colorful feathers, uh, and could explain the difference, say, between roosters and hens, um, whether the effects of the testes were via the nervous system or, or via the blood. And through this transplantation experiment, he determined that the effects were via the blood because you can cut all the nervous um, neur neural connections, take the testes and implant them into the uh, chickens or the young chicks abdomen, and they will go through a male puberty. And if That's you incredible. don't reimplant the, if you don't reimplant the testes, they um, grow up to be a hen. So it's, he at that point knew that it's not, the testes don't work via the nervous system. They're doing something to the blood. They change the blood and the blood acts upon the entire organism. And that's amazing because that, if you think about it, the differences between males and females, so many of our differences do have to do, originate in the testes. And it's something the testes is producing that is squirted into your blood that blood's going all around your body, into your brain, into all of your cells, all of almost all of them, sending androgens all over the place and shaping the expression of genes throughout your body for most of your life, starting in utero. And the brain part is really important. Steroids get right into the brain, can interact with neurons. Other hormones can't always do that because proteins can't just cross the blood-brain barrier, but steroids can, and they are potent in terms of coordinating masculine behavior and a masculine body to maximize reproduction in males in ways that are different from females. It is, I think, kind of miraculous. I mean, I, I, I obviously, I, the fact that you could take some chicken balls, so to speak, <laughs> and, and just shove them in another female chicken and have them have that. Well, in, an, in, like, another, I, in a male, in a, in a male who had been castrated, where if you don't put the balls back, he develops as a as a as a cacon with none of the I aggression, see. none of the libido, none of the bright feathers. But when you do reimplant, you do implant the testes, then he develops on a completely different course, which is the masculine course. I see, I see, and that's yeah. again, that's quite distinctive because the rooster looks incredibly different than than the hen. It always struck me as a weird thing as a kid. Like, wow, why is the why is the cock so, if you pardon the expression, so resplendent? Why does he have this comb yeah. and this ridiculous? It's it's kind of absurd, really, how ridiculous, uh, showy it is. Um, a bit like the obviously the peacock is the the most extraordinary uh, example of this. Yeah. So they figured out they figured out there was this something, some substance that in the blood that transforms. Person now maybe, and obviously eventually they they figured out that was testosterone, which itself, as I understand it, it's also the source of estrogen. That's correct. And how does this affect? How does this impact the human body? Every person is born embryonically uh, as a default female. Uh, we 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 you need testosterone uh, to kick in to actually create what is a male. But we all, and this I've always found incredibly interesting really that that we all start out the same men and women start out the same there is some a very fundamental equality there uh between the sexes that um 
And in fact, in some ways, uh, Genesis gets it the wrong way around. Uh, 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 woman was not made from the rib of, of man. We were all default women, and testosterone gave us men. It's as if men are in some ways the, the, the extra leap, not the default. So explain to me how, and explain to our readers, really, how and what time in one's development does testosterone impact you? The first, I understand, is in, the, in utero. That's that's right. an incredibly important moment. When does that hit? When does the when does the testosterone start to create a male? Right. So, yeah, I think it's basically right. A lot of people don't like the idea that female the female phenotype, the female form, is essentially the default. I'm not sure why that's displeasing to people, but I think it's it's essentially correct. And that te- you need testosterone. Why would people be upset about that? Why? 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 Um, Wouldn't feminists be kind of psyched about that? Or something? I'm not sure. I, I don't. I don't really understand. Um, but I think it's useful because. Oh, oh, I know. I know why. <laughs> because no, and I and I shouldn't laugh. I think the idea is that it should. It's not that. It's that female development is passive. So I think there's if oh, you see. that females are the default, then it means that nothing has to happen to make females. It, but there really are important genes, et cetera. And yes, there are important genes that have to be activated, obviously, to grow either a male or a female. But essentially, if you don't have testosterone, yes, you will get a, ma- a male form. Or if you don't have testosterone able to act. So, and the other thing that we have to acknowledge is that there are genetic differences, but they are minuscule. The only genetic differences that exist between males and females are the genes that are on the Y chromosome and the lack of a second X chromosome. So it's, and, and that's complicated in terms of like gene dosage compensation between the X's, which isn't always perfect. So there are, you know, in some, um, for some genes, there are two copies of, of the proteins being produced, but for most X genes in females, only one um, set of genes will be expressed from one X chromosome at a time. So, but the point is that in males, yes, there and females, there are genetic differences, but they are relatively small. And by genetic differences, I mean our DNA and the genes that we are born with. I don't mean the genes that are expressed. So we have very different patterns of gene expression that are caused largely by hormonal differences, particularly testosterone, which does control gene transcription. So I'm just getting my ahead of myself right. a little bit. So no, that's the, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I uh, because I, I I do think that in terms of our understanding of the difference between men and women, to understand our essential commonality in almost every genetic and the, but then the way in which for purposes of reproduction, obviously, entirely for purposes of reproduction, uh, testosterone kicks in and creates uh, a binary uh, a, a sexual um, uh, nature to, to humans, um, sexual dimorphism. Um, so tell me, so in the womb, boom, yes. when, when, do, when did I get the first uh, blast of testosterone? Yeah, so you get, so we've first, the, when you said that we start out the same, we really do. And it's the presence of the Y chromosome and the um, SRY gene on the Y chromosome that 
leads to the differentiation of the gonads, which can essentially go either way. If the Y chromosome is present, then in almost all cases, the gonads differentiate into testes. When they differentiate into testes, so that's happening around five to six weeks, a couple weeks after that, the testes will differentiate, will have um, certain cell types that allow testosterone to be produced. So there's um, Leydig cells and Sertoli cells, and it is the Leydig cells that will start to produce testosterone. And then testosterone will continue to go up um, and peak around 18 weeks, and then it will go down again uh, throughout the rest of gestation. But then there's another three-month period right after birth in males called the mini-puberty, where testosterone levels get to be very, very high again, and we're learning more about the significance of that later peak. But the early peak in utero serves to differentiate the internal and external genitalia in the male direction. So you take the form that you talked about as sort of the default and what could be the female form, which essentially just has to grow and develop from, say, there's a structure called the genital tubercle, which just looks like a small clitoris. And if you have high levels of testosterone in utero, that structure will develop essentially into the penis. And something that another set of structures that basically look like um, external and internal labia will, uh, under the influence of testosterone, differentiate into the scrotum. And then you have all kinds of actions on the um, internal sort of plumbing that differentiate males and females. But that is all getting going in utero. But importantly, um, and, and this is crucial and I think underappreciated, you don't want to develop a male body without doing something to the brain to condition that organism to respond to its environment in a way that will allow it to make use of essentially its sperm, right? So, and to maximize reproductive success in the environment that that organism finds itself in. Um, and in order to do that, something needs to happen to the brain. Little kids need to practice the behaviors that are going to help them increase reproductive success as adults. So there are different behaviors that boys need to practice than girls on average need to practice. And we see those playing out in childhood. And that's not all because of the patriarchy or societal expectations. We see similar differences in the behavior in juveniles, say in chimpanzees, even in rodents. And we absolutely know for a fact that it is exposure to male levels of testosterone in utero that shape um, these sex differences in juvenile behavior like rough and tumble play. So that's just very common across the animal kingdom that male juveniles seem to really enjoy pouncing all over each other, but really they're practicing aggressive competition. And uh, so what, some, what role yeah. does that does the this the, the mini puberty have in that sense? Because um uh, does that just re-entrench those patterns of behavior that testosterone has begun to 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 create in in the brain? Does that does that or do we well, not yet know exactly? We don't yet know um so we don't yet know we have better research, clearer research about testosterone's actions on the brain in non-human animals, you know, for obvious 
reasons. Yeah. We can do experiments. We can actually look at the brains, um, and we can control their environments, etc. But now I just forgot which you. Asked. I was asking oh, you what, asked about mini puberty, the yeah, mini so puberty, and whether yeah. that that's a big impact. I mean, I'm it's, curious because yeah. because um, obviously humans we're unique. We have this quite long pregnancy, then we have a long period in which we're basically helpless and we're still, our brains are still growing very fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so one would expect even after birth, a, a boost of testosterone in the first three months would have an effect on on the, the, the behavior and identity in, in, in nature of, of the child. Yeah. So we know that prenatal testosterone has effects on childhood behavior, partly because of sex differences, but partly because of differences of sexual development in which, say, um, female fetuses who are exposed to higher than normal levels of testosterone in a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, those girls will end up, on average, showing behaviors that are uh, somewhat masculinized, like higher rates of rough and tumble play. And their conditions are corrected at birth, so their high exposure to testosterone stops at birth, yet these girls are more likely to be attracted to females, they're more likely to have rough and tumble play, and they're more likely to be interested in male typical professions as adult, for one thing, as adults so, for so, one thing. So that's in uh, kind of indirect uh, so that's fascinating. But yeah, okay, the, go I on. just want to get back to the um, Mini puberty. Puberty. Yeah, puberty. So yeah. one thing that we do know is that it seems to be important for penile development. Um, so some there's further development that goes on at that time. There may be effects on masculine behavior. It's just unclear right now. But we we do know pretty clearly that the uterine environment is uh, extremely important for the masculinization of the brain and the body in humans and non-human animals. So then then those differences seem to not be that great in childhood between boys and girls in, in many respects. I mean, physically, they're not particular boys aren't particularly stronger than girls before puberty. Um, they're more there are easily some, there are some some strength differences, but there are or speed differences, but they are very small compared to what happens with the onset of puberty yeah so then boom we get this um this uh, this this yeah. weird experience which you know i think everyone can remember and those of us who were born and grew up in an era where we were told absolutely nothing about what was happening to our bodies uh nothing was explained i had no idea what was going on to me with me but i have to say i experienced it as the best fucking thing that ever happened to me in my life um uh, and that was just an issue, even though my Catholicism was telling me this is all terrible, I mustn't do anything. I was so psyched by it. It was just like the most wonderful revelation to have this thing attached to me that would give so much pleasure and fantasy and intensity. Yeah, sure. So, how old were you when you realized you were attracted to boys and then men? Uh, as a child, I definitely had crushes on other boys and definitely had crushes on, on men and boys in movies and TV and so on and so forth. And actually it, it had a little sketchbook at home where there was no access to porn in those days uh, where I would draw these dudes that I was attracted to uh, in ways that I had no, I had no idea that 
what you did with another man. I had no idea what sex was. I hadn't been taught that. Uh, I'm being taught what the Immaculate Conception was, but I hadn't been taught what Immaculate Conception was, as it were. Um, I had a good Catholic education, but but still, um, yeah, I, I found it. I found it wonderful, to be honest. It just intuitively wonderful and empowering. And you weren't, and you weren't feeling guilty or you know something's wrong with me because you I did. I knew that. I I knew that in my mind because I've been told it so clearly. By but your in family my gut, or? by my family, by my church, uh, by uh, by society, um, yeah. that obviously this was wrong. And I thought, well, is it? And this is honestly, my I thought maybe it was because I was circumcised. I had no idea what this was, but I was <laughs> doing my best, the best I could with the information I had. Yeah. Um, but I do remember it being quite transformative. In fact, because for the following reason, even though I had been obviously I had crushes on boys and felt attracted to boys, I, I felt much less conflicted about that once puberty hit. That yeah. it, it sort of yeah. gave me the confidence of my own sex in a way yeah. that, that kind of spread through my soul and my body. And I felt okay, finally, as a man. Uh, puberty resolved those worries. <laughs> I didn't mean to make you emotional. It, 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 it's, it's, uh, it, it was a really important moment for me. I think for a lot of gay boys uh, who feel yeah, confused. I just wished that what you just described could be bottled and sold. And, you know, it's so beautiful to hear you talk about embracing and loving your male sexuality. That's not always happening now, um, especially yeah. in young gay boys. And it's also, it's also, there's a problem with heterosexual boys who are feeling ashamed of their male sexuality. So that's why I was, you can, yeah. You can see me, nobody else can. Yeah, but I, I, um, no, I, I love, that's I, tragic, I, and I love what you're saying, and I wish that it were everyone's experience of. And this was this was despite the fact that I was atypical. Like I didn't like rough and tumble sports very much, and right. I didn't like. I was made to play rugby, and I, I really didn't like it. I would rather not have my nose shoved into the dirt, and. <laughs> And I was a little bookish, and I wasn't like my brother, who was much more typically uh, rough and tumble and all the rest of it. But uh, as my dad once said to me, um, uh, well, there was a discussion once. I don't want to tell the story again. I told it before. But, uh, in front of my, my, we were at my grandparents for Christmas, and my, I was in the room with my brother and my mother and my grandmother of my father's side. My brother was bashing around the room like a young boy does, lots of, and I was sitting in the corner with a book. And my grandmother looked at my brother and me and looked at my mother and said, well, at least now you have a real boy. Uh, uh, and when, how old were you? Eight, maybe eight or nine. Um, but you never and, questioned whether you were in the right body. No, although other people did. <laughs> I was asked in, element, in elementary school. <laughs> I, 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 I know that story, yeah. <laughs> elementary school the girl turns around to me and say are you sure you're a boy because i didn't want to yeah. be i got out of a pe class um right. so but here's what happened god bless my dad god rest his soul he um on the way back in the car my mom said what does your mother mean by that what is he's, he's, he's a real boy which is what does she mean and does she mean he's like one of one of them we no one said the word it was so unmentionable and my right. dad said well i don't know i said he said all i know is it's 100 male." And that was 
incredibly important to me. And I think yeah. it's also quite important to a lot of gay men and of gay course. boys that yeah. we not be forced to choose between our sexual orientation and our masculinity. That is, that is something that other people want to enforce upon us. And some people do have those issues and they absolutely have every right to have those issues of compl com complexities with their gender dysphoria or continuing extra, yeah. slightly more feminine men. But, but I think it's quite a struggle for gay men to embrace being men as well as being gay. And, and what I've tried to do is, is to insist that that's possible, even though the culture is constantly telling gay kids that they're not really men, you know, that they have to dress up in, they have to put on dresses or they have to be effeminate or they have to be queer or they have to be other. When in fact, in my experience, the vast majority of gay men are just men and denying them that is, is a really horrible form of psychological uh, harassment in a way. And I think other people that talk about gay men in a way that makes them feminine in, in a way don't realize what they're doing. Uh, they, they're not helping a lot of people understand yeah. and own their own sex. Right. And, and one thing you have written about so eloquently uh, that I used your words in my book, and I'm glad you said it and I didn't have to, <laughs> that, and this is one of the misconceptions about being a gay man and testosterone. There's no evidence that gay men have more feminine levels of testosterone. And I think people are barking up the wrong tree. Gay men have a totally male sexuality. And you describe that so beautifully. <laughs> and uh, it plays out in gay culture. And it we does. see what's going on. And so it's, I'm not sure that we should be searching for the key to gayness in low testosterone, because one of the main things that testosterone does in male animals is jack up their uh, libido, desire for you know higher number of sexual partners, and um, it's not again. This is all on average. This uh, yeah, but you'd be, libido, you'd be yeah, but that that is gay men seem to be no less ambitious, no less. Uh, status seeking. They often seem to be more so, partly because of need to compensate in some ways. Um, very aggressive, very male, horny as fuck. And, uh, and as I say, you don't, we don't have a problem with a lesbian STD epidemic. We, we do have constant problems right. with gay men not being able to resist one another. And when women are not in the mix to arrest or to 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 slow this down or to say wait a minute then you we get into all sorts of problems and look we we can celebrate sexual freedom with the, while acknowledging that it also brings some pretty rough consequences in terms of uh, can can do that in terms of disease and right. in in my lifetime absolutely a horrifying moment of of but that was a function of our being men not of our being gay um right. i think but anyway let's get back to so we so the the boy becomes a man as it were um and this is not just in his body it's also in his brain there's this sort of sense sometimes you get that that, that somehow everything physiological stops at the neck and that, our, that somehow our brains operate in a completely separate zone uh even though our brains of course create society and create culture um uh they're also driven in many ways by these deeper more powerful forces what makes men 
different then? What does testosterone give men that makes them different? That we absolutely know from the science, that we know from the science. There is, and the answer is there isn't a clear um, direct answer from the science about how testosterone masculinizes behavior anyway in humans. So we have a lot of evidence from non-human animals and we have some direct, um, some, I'll say indirect evidence in humans. So one of the uh, approaches I took in the book to trying to answer that question was to look at the literature on testosterone changes in transgender people who choose to use, who, to alter their hormones as part of their gender transition. So that was uh -huh. absolutely fascinating. But again, that is complicated. So I can't point to one part of the brain that changes when, if you go from female to male levels of testosterone, now this, you know, brain part X changes, which then causes this masculine behavior. We don't know that. Um, but we have, if you look at all of the evidence together, the evolutionary logic, the mechanisms, experiments in non-human animals, the logic of sexual selection, um, and the evidence from humans, and I don't want to call it experiments because these are about human beings living their lives who have natural differences in androgens from differences of sexual development, like the one I talked about earlier. And there's other differences uh, like in XY people who have internal testes uh, and XY sex chromosomes, but no testosterone action at all. These people are extremely feminine and very uh, feminized in their behavior. Um, but I found some of the most powerful evidence in the from the transgender literature because it confirms what you would suspect, and that is when um, people who are born female transition to male and take male levels of testosterone, the main thing that changes is sexual interest and sexual behavior. Of course, in addition to physical changes that go along with that, like increased muscle mass and a, a deep voice. But I want to pause for one second because I'm being casual about this link between increased libido and muscle mass and a deep voice. But I want to make sure people appreciate that this hormone is coordinating the physical, the sexually selected secondary sex characteristics, which allow generally male animals to compete rather aggressively for mates. Um, with the adaptive behavior, which is to seek out those mates. So if you have high testosterone and you have a lot of muscle and you have a deep voice, but you don't want to have sex, um, that's not going to be adaptive. That would be a weird thing for sexual selection to sculpt. Natural selection and evolution doesn't like to waste energy. You know, so the all whole... these are in service of more successful reproduction. Yeah, it's all about converting energy into offspring as efficiently as possible in each sex. And that is why males and females have different levels of sex hormones and why males have sperm and testosterone and females have eggs and you know estrogen and progesterone. And that shapes the bodies and the brains to uh, do what sexual what natural and sexual selection kind of want or sculpt it sculpt us to do which is to again you know convert energy into offspring that's what it's about um but so i haven't given you this 
evidence maybe that would be really satisfying about how testosterone shapes behavior. But the transgender um, literature is really interesting in terms of the sexual changes, uh, which I could go into they more get, detail They about. get suddenly very horny, right? The, the, they the, the, they're, horny. they're amazed at how horny they become. They, they start yeah. where they never before looked at somebody's ass. They can't keep their eyes off it. it, it there, is, there is this sort of almost pathological well, we horniness that they... Yeah. Sorry, what? We like women also like to look at asses. My son just asked yeah. me that the other day. Do you? Well, yes. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> yes, <laughs> obviously. Men who like the body parts. We like the body parts. No, no, no. But no, I know what obviously. You're no, but they just they they they. This is self-reported, so it's not. We're not inferring yes. anything. They tell us. Damn, I mean, I just couldn't stop thinking about sex, wanting to have sex. I yes. suddenly better understood a little bit better. What, like Why be, what men live like, live in this yes. hell, this hellish ex yes. experience of constantly needing and wanting to fuck. I mean, it's it's not the most pleasant of experiences either. It can be a challenge. In adolescence, it's unbelievably challenging. I mean, uh, you're walking around as a kid and you've got a you know your, your tent pole in your pants all the time. You can't have no real control over it, and but and you are obsessed. You, it, it's it's just incredibly hard to overcome, and. But that's what, and that's what people say, right? That's exactly what they say in terms of when exactly they get a bunch of stuff. exactly what they say. And I think this would be extremely helpful for all of us to understand and hear and listen to and stop shaming men for having these feelings. Um, these are normal feelings. And the shame should come with acting inappropriately on those feelings, Right. It's not the understanding of human nature that should lead us to make judgments about individuals. It's how are you behaving and what are we doing as a society to shape behavior, behaviors in a way that we can all live together relatively peacefully. And I, you know, I have a 12 year old boy and he's going to be going through all this stuff soon. It's starting now. And he feels he's picked up from the culture that, that, being becoming a man that there's something toxic about becoming a man and i am appalled by this i want to celebrate his sexual maturity just like you know women get are celebrated for becoming women i want him to feel like becoming a man like you described earlier is the most awesome thing on the planet and it's going to be you know and having i don't know what it's like Yes, when I went through adolescence, my sex drive was higher, right? But it wasn't what I hear men talk about. And it wasn't what I hear um, trans men talking about. And I find that fascinating. And it is not shameful. It's interesting. It's beautiful. And it's to be understood. What we need to address is sexual violence and people who cannot manage to control um their the expression of their natures. What you know that is incredibly important. I am passionate about that. But well, obviously, but come, the conversation is okay. No shutting down the conversation. No shaming people for saying what what you just said that you know you're overwhelmed with horniness and puberty or whatever. Let's hear it. Let's understand it. Thank you. Yeah, and it seems to me that if you want to help men uh, control and navigate this this otherwise thrilling exhilarating but also quite dangerous and difficult area it's all of the above you're going to be much more successful 
if you treat the basic condition as good and then show how it can be brought to even better ends, uh, to show how aggression, for example, can be used to defend people from violence yes. rather than yes. inflicting violence, to show that that male masculinity, athleticism, strength can be extraordinarily great virtues, celebrate the way men Heroism. have built, built so much of America, risked their lives, soldiers, uh, armies, hard labor, stuff that men essentially, because of their, their, their greater physical strength, um, are particularly uh, gifted for and, and able to do. And also, uh, especially the way in which that strength is also designed not just to head off other males and to compete with them, but also to defend your own female and your yeah. offspring in a way that can be directed to noble ends. I mean, this is the the way the phrase "gentleman" uh, originated is 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 not to is 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 to not to deny the man, but to say how we can use the man to become more gentle in command of his essential nature. And what, yeah. I, what yeah. I agree with you on very passionately is the demonization of simply being male, which comes from, it seems to me, denying testosterone and saying, therefore, that you're making these some choices socially to behave this way, which are morally damning. And therefore, Can since I one sex does that more than the other, they are inherently toxic. Yeah, and I, I just want to say that I think that shaming and damning comes from the association of the worst extremes of male behavior um, with the just regular guys who are many of whom are, you know, amazing people, most of whom are not horrible, aggressive rapists and murderers. But because on the extremes, there are very few women out there doing the rape, raping and murdering so that those, uh, yes, toxic behaviors do come to be associated with every man. And that's obviously just a huge logical error. And we need to expose that and talk about it. And, um, and I just want to, I could hear as you, I agree with what you just said, but I can also hear people out there saying, wait a minute, women don't need to be taken care of. And we don't need men to take care of us. Um, however, <laughs> uh, that may be true. And there are a lot of incredibly, you know, physically strong and powerful women who are serving our country, et cetera, and fighting for what is right, even physically. But it is true that on average, males take more physical risks in uh, the service of helping others. I mean, that's well established. And that is the flip side of all this, um, you know, negative uh, implications of male aggression. There is a flip side there that I think you articulated pretty well. I would just, you know, throw in on average and women are also well, very strong and brave. But yeah, and I think that's, we have to allow that. We have to celebrate that. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, and it doesn't mean, and I think this is another very important thing that you are very clear about in the book, is that talking about the impact of biology, of evolutionary biology, on us does not in any way invalidate or make irrelevant at all the role of culture, which is incredibly important as well. It's, it's always both and. And it's finding the right mix of both and that can lead us to happier and better lives and societies, as opposed to insisting on either or, which I think ends up in nowhere land. Um, and most societies, 
I think over time have developed all sorts of rituals, practices, ways in which men are trained, tamed, yes. directed. They're given status for certain things, not status for others. There's a whole range of stuff. And men themselves erect these hierarchies among themselves too. And there's a, you know, I want to talk about crying for a second, because this is another yeah. thing that really struck me, because you, you found yourself in tears earlier. And, and the, by the way, I think those tears are, are really tears of empathy for men. They're not, they're, 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 they're real. And I think um, I'm really moved by them, to be honest with you. I find that also with someone like Jordan Peterson, who, who literally weeps when he thinks of the nature of men or of boys of being demonized simply by virtue of being men or boys. Not other reasons, but that. It's so awful to think of young men and young boys being brought up to talk that there's something inherently wrong with them. It, 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 it is it, awful. Just, um, what is the effect of that going to be? Of course, it's going to make them feel angry and unaccepted and to act out, I would think. And, and then what happens good. is that they're increasingly drawn towards biological reductionism, which says, fuck you. Yeah, yeah. We'll, be, we'll be the motherfuckers you say we are. Yeah. We'll beat no, the fuck up out of you. We, we will do this stuff. Um, or even, for example, the way in which broishness is is uh, is derided and regarded as awful. Now, it's worth mocking from time to time. I was not one of the jocks. Uh, however, let me give you a little example. The way in which men insult each other all the time, which is a form of friendship. This is, right. Women don't do it quite as much. Uh, no, we don't and there's a way. Say, hey, you've, you've gained 20 pounds, dude. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, but men do it all the fucking time. We're brutal with one another, and yet... And the way it. in which we use nicknames or we undermine each other's <laughs> or we remember some humiliating moment in the past, which we always bring up whenever we see them, we retain these folk grudges. This is ways in which we, we enjoy being men. And, and, and it is different. It doesn't mean it's worse or better. It's just different. And there's an element in which that male, all-male society is also being kind of attempted to be squashed um, or, or restricted, which in a way is also, I think, unhealthy um in ways in which women are not in any way i don't think uh, prompted to, to to restrict themselves or, or to have their own forms of discourse which which is slightly different and often overlapping obviously but here's here's the question you know it's very hard in these discussions to keep in mind i hate to use the term the bell curve but there is a bell curve here, yeah. which means that men and women overlap massively in all, right. in so many areas but there are, for example, the controversial notion that there's greater male variability. That, in fact, although the mean is basically the same for most of our behaviors and, and for intelligence, for example, um, there tend to be at the very upper end a very high intelligence, a freakish number of men, and at the very low end, too. Yeah. Uh, and, men, and men also uh, can be much dumber and much smarter and this is this is what Larry Summers, of course, lost his job over, and other people lose their job over. But it, it's not it's not wrong, is it? Uh, I I don't know. It's not wrong. Uh, that is the data as I understand it. Um, and we don't have a totally clear explanation, but there's some really good hypotheses that uh, you know one of which has to do with our um, having women having to. Uh, X chromosomes and men having an X and a Y and males having uh, an X and a Y. But that is how it works. And there are large sex differences in many traits at the extremes. Well, while, while the average for many traits is uh, 
roughly is this the why same, but crying is not one of those. <laughs> crying, okay. the, the average is very, I don't know if you want to get back. Yeah, let's talk about crying. crying. Let's go back to crying. Sorry, I, yeah. I got off this subject. No, no. And I think crying is interesting because, first of all, personally, I tear up a lot. I find it somewhat embarrassing. I've done a lot of thinking and research about it. I, I even tear up sometimes when I'm teaching and I worry that it undermines my authority. But I did just read my students' reviews of the course, which I was even a little more teary during COVID because I just pick up on what my students are feeling. There are a lot of struggles going on and they tell me what's going on. And what I teach about also, I, I have students who are gay and tell me they tried to come out to their parents and they were rejected or they're you know, I, I know a lot about their personal stories and it relates to the science. It's that's what the science is about. And so mm. anyway, that's so I do get teary, but um, and sometimes it's embarrassing. And there are plenty of men who, like maybe Jordan Peterson, who are also very emotional and comfortable expressing their emotion. So it's not that men don't do this and women do. And there are cultural differences in the expression of what we can call vulnerable emotion. So the displaying publicly of vulnerability, you can think about from an evolutionary point of view, might not make as much sense for men who wanna show strength and aggressiveness and competitiveness. If you're showing vulnerability, you might be saying, hey, you can beat me in a brawl here, come at me. So, um, so that's just one sort of evolutionary perspective on the sex difference. But also, so there is a large sex difference in crying and fear, and, but I'll, I'll just and focus some on crying. Trans, yeah. Some transgender people yeah, yeah. that I've known, uh, I mean, it was quite striking. Someone I talked to said that they, 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 they stopped crying. Yes. <laughs> they, they used so, to cry a lot and they, they weren't. Now, that's strange, isn't it? That is amazing. That's totally consistent with the literature. It the All the transgender people I, I spoke to, um, male to female, female to male, and a female to male to female detransitioner. And I asked them all about crying, and they all said that uh, either taking or blocking testosterone completely changed their ability to access their uh, emotions, the way they, the range of emotions that they experience, and particularly crying. Uh, what, so, um, one person I talked to said that before. Um, this is the detransitioner. So she started as female. She used to cry a few times a week. She took testosterone and cried once or twice a year and said she could, uh, she felt, how did she describe it? That her emotions were blunted. She was in touch with anger, but uh, not her other emotions in the way that she had before. She didn't feel the same range of emotions. And then when she went back off of testosterone, she described feeling the pleasure of experiencing her emotions again and even the highs and the lows so that kind of evidence to me that's consistent with the scientific literature on testosterone and crying and on sex differences in crying and it is profound and powerful and it changed the way that i relate i have to say to my husband oddly who i had always been trying to get to be more emotional and expressive and for whatever reason interviewing these trans people and really getting into literature, I just had a new take on it, which was, you know what? He's great. He's fine. I'm the way I am. He's the way he is. And I was attracted to him because he is so sort of like my rock. 
you know, and, um, and I need that. And, and maybe sometimes I'm frustrated that he can't express more, but I know that that was why I was attracted to him in the first place. I'm not saying this is how it is for all women or that anyone, everyone else should be like this, but I think I had drunk the Kool-Aid or something and assumed that I had it right as a woman. I knew, I know emotions. Men are supposed to be more like us. You guys are getting it wrong. Um, mm. But I don't really believe that anymore. And it's, mm. that's a weird transition because I think it's such a part of our social fabric or somehow that women get emotions better. Um, but it's, diff it's different. It's a different way of being in the world. And I have a lot of thinking to do sort of philosophically about that. But that's what about this profound for me. This um, and again, just to reiterate the bell curve point, it doesn't mean that no men cry. It doesn't. No, mean, of men cry. It doesn't mean yeah. that some men don't cry much more than women. It, 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 th it. again, it's so important. It's a such a difficult concept to understand. This is a broad reality in general, in That's which right. any individual you can't deduce anything for any individual from this. It just helps us understand the broad nature of our species. And of our activities, and let me That's focus right. on Thank you. Right. one particular aspect of this, which is you refer to it a little bit, and I spoke a little about this in a previous podcast, which is the fact that men tend to be oriented towards things, and women tend to be more oriented towards people, and and that the that the skills of human interaction, of empathy, of listening, of uh of interacting with others to get them to do things they might otherwise not do, of hearing people's difficulties, and then the experience of just doing things, planning something, getting something finished, organizing something, uh, examining or using a tool, or figuring out some intellectual project or some mathematical thing. These yeah. tend to be thingies, things. And, and even though there are obviously exceptions on all sides, it, there is a te natural tendency for women to be graduating towards interactions and men to be graduating towards things. That is, is, right. is, is that, that, that's, that's, and that's related to testosterone, you think? Well, I want to be very careful about that because the evidence that those psychological sex differences are directly a product of testosterone differences is less clear than I would say for sex and aggression, because there we can connect the evidence to the rest of the animal kingdom. And it's totally consistent. And we have clear mechanisms. We have an evolutionary story there. Um, and we have uh, some evidence from the disorders, or sorry, uh, differences of uh, sexual development. When it comes to these kind of higher order uh, career preferences and cognitive styles and cognitive skills, we do have these sex differences that exist and are pretty uh, consistent. But uh, there is a lot of overlap there. And the evidence, as far as I understand it, the strongest evidence is on the sex, is on the effects of. Uh, differences in testosterone level in utero. So these are the organizational effects. And this is really more my impression than something very, you know, a clear, loud signal from the literature, but that it is these differences in utero that shape our trajectories in life in terms of our temperaments, whether we are highly, um, whether we have a lot of fear, uh, high 
need for high activity level, a lot of um, uh, combativeness or something, and that uh, that those differences could even shape our patterns of sexual attraction ultimately, but not because we're designed to be attracted to one sex or the other, but because we are designed to have a certain um, temperament. And maybe that temperament causes us to be attracted to the sex that's complementary to us or something. Um, so I think there might be a similar effect of, the, of prenatal testosterone in utero on these adult preferences. And partly I think that because of the evidence from congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where females who are exposed to higher levels of testosterone do have that masculinized, tend to have a masculinized pattern of cognition. There's some evidence for cognition, but um, patterns of sexual attraction, but also career interests and preferences, an uh, increased preference for working with things over people, and they tend to make more money. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. But I don't mm. know about the evidence, say, of um, changes in those preferences, say, in transgender people who change their testosterone levels. So one reason that might not be clear evidence is because transgender people who change their testosterone levels have kind of a mismatch with their prenatal testosterone exposure. So we can't necessarily infer that a change in testosterone in transgender people in adulthood should have the same effects as high testosterone right. would, say, in a person who also had high testosterone in utero. So in adulthood, right. it's called the activational effects of testosterone. And in utero, it's called the organizational effects. I see. Well, that would tend to make more sense. But in the very beginning, you're sort of setting up a broad organizational structure. And then, That's right. And then, of course, on top of that, and there's also individual personality. There are, there's, oh, right, there's, of there's, yeah. there's the vast range of, of different psychological uh, mechanisms. I mean, you, you noticed even among the chimps, that even though you could see common patterns of behavior, there were also individual personalities that, yes, that, that, that mastered or didn't master those forces in different ways. Um, right. it's, now, for example, one of the things we do in general is, is, is get little boys and, and adolescent males to have contact sports. The, the West has created this massive industry called sports, which is often sort of gladiatorial, which is all about competitiveness and status. Uh, from the players on the field to the fans. And this is, as I often point out, it's a quarter of the newspaper, for fuck's sake. I mean, it's, yeah. in fact, it's, and it's, it used to be the only thing that people read. I mean, it's often the thing that most people, normal people read. They're not reading the bloody op-ed pages. They want to know who won last night. And, <laughs> uh, and this gives people lots of pleasure. But it's also, to my mind, and it was kind of developed in 19th century England, really, as a, as a way, and rugby school was one of the places. It was a way of saying, look, we have men they have this aggression. It's it's right. it's something we have to deal with. It's not bad. Um, it's natural. So let's find a way to have it be expressed that is not harmful, that does not kill people, that does not uh, harm other people, and that nonetheless expresses this part of maleness. And uh, and and that struck me strikes me as an obvious example of how our culture actually does accept a difference. Um, but you're proposing a study, obviously. So this is now... An, this am I? Is an, <laughs> well, that's an empirical question, right? We could okay. look to see uh, whether cultures who have 
and I'm not sure how it, I, I really don't know what the outcome here would be. So do cultures who have a greater uh, culture of sports for men, is there any reduced levels of, you know, male violence? Because sometimes, so I had a student of mine actually did a paper on uh, sexual assault on college campuses and looked at the relationship between the participation and enthusiasm for sports at particular colleges and sexual assault. And you can guess the, how that worked out. I, I, I can. So, and that's partly because, isn't it true, that in fact, as you point out in the book also, that, that your activities can also increase your testosterone. So, so, so in, testosterone is also affected by the environment in which you're triggered to produce more of it. And when you're yeah, in this gladiatorial... Yeah, sorry. I mean, when, and, and, if you, and the other thing that we do know is that, is that if you take, um, you test the testosterone levels of, of, of people who are, watch, are watching a game, for example, and you, you test those of the, the team that won versus yeah. the team that lost, you will find the testosterone levels in the supporters of the team that won to be considerably higher than those uh, in those yes, who lost. There's some, some evidence for that, yes. Um, and, um, that, and so yes. you can go to, a, as we saw in Britain for a very long time, you go football matches, create this unbelievably testosterone-hostile environment, and then it spills out into the streets afterwards. And so it right. becomes even worse. But right. you'll also notice that that has stopped. One reason it stopped is that they, they, they for example, they made it sit down. No, no, no. I mean, over the last okay. 20, 30 years, oh, 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 okay. hooliganism and violence has gone down because yeah. they, they stopped the standing rooms only where men were packed in together, gave them seats, uh, a more calm, more bourgeois, more feminine way of attending a match yeah. is to sit yeah. down, not stand up. They invited women and kids to join more than so it wasn't an uh, all male thing. And yeah. Uh, and so slowly began, again, not by denying these feelings, but by attending to how they can get out of control. Um, I yeah, wonder, no, I, can I just yes, interject here? Because I, I was going to protest earlier that I think sports culture just gets men all riled up to form coalitions that ultimately result in, can sort of encourage each other in sexual assault on some level and that sports culture is not always healthy for male on female aggression. However, you just provided an answer. So, and it is to include families because when men are around their families and when men have little kids, they become, you know, they are uh, become more nurturing. There's some evidence that their testosterone levels go down. We see this in birds. And I wrote about that in the book where uh, when male birds have little chicks, they, their testosterone levels are suppressed so that they can attend to their chicks instead of going off and aggressing with other males and trying to find new mates. And if you raise their testosterone while they're supposed to be engaged in parenting behavior, they neglect their chicks and their chicks die. And then they have no reproductive success. And that's another, so, that's another yeah. point we need to make, which is that too much testosterone Yes, uh, is bad for men, and it bad. It's also bad for reproduction. Yeah, because precisely for those reasons that it, it, it's important for men to be around, to stick around their kids, to be part of the defense of the family and the the, the nutrition of the family and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and if they are running around picking fights 
and and betraying whichever partner they just had, they're not going to actually successfully um, put have their genes carried forward. So there's plenty of reasons why testosterone is there to be modulated and to be That's controlled. Right. And domesticity can actually reduce those levels. As you said, men who have children in the house I mean, God knows how many of my Young straight children. friends tell me this. The yeah. minute they have kids, they stop having <laughs> sex. Uh, there's, just a, there's just something about that. But then let's talk about this. Men want to have sex much more than women, don't they? Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and there again, in that simple fact, you have uh, oceans of literature, massive amounts of culture of this mismatch. Uh, but it's kind of a mismatch, but it's, it's a kind of brilliant mismatch because it, it somehow fits together in a way um, because it calms men down and, and somehow also, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm blathering now, but, but I see something beautiful in that. Yeah, well, I, mean, I don't I see something that, terrible um, in it, except it's, yeah, it's a no, bigger sacrifice to men. Well, it's terrible, of course, when it causes social problems, when especially if there are I'll just say disenfranchised men who cannot find partners. And then they see high status men who have lots of partners and those disenfranchised men can't accumulate resources and really want the resources in order to gain a partner. So that is a problem. And the reason it is uh, part of the reason it's a problem is because of this intense desire for a sexual partner among men in a way that I think is hard for many women to understand, but I, and I also wanna emphasize what you've been saying repeatedly, which is there's tons of overlap. There's lots of women who, who want a lot of sex and a lot of sexual partners. And there's also plenty of men who use different strategies uh, and are really interested in just committing to one partner. And, and there's no evidence that the testosterone levels are particularly um, different there. So there are different strategies in terms of pairing up, but I, do, I, I don't know of any evidence that there are many men who have lower healthy testosterone levels and, and lower um, libidos on average than women. That is just a very robust finding. And yeah, it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view uh, in order to increase mating success. So because higher testosterone helps men invest energy in mating over parenting on average and whatever it takes to be successful in the mating game. And in humans, in most advanced societies, I'll say that's not uh, physical aggression anymore. So it has to do with other kinds of status competition and higher status men tend to do better at increasing their uh, number of mates or getting a, you know, what we would call high quality mate, like a young or healthy um, female. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's a logic to it and that is what the hormone does. Yeah, and if if there are if men are not domesticated, well, there's a particular age too when men tend to be most violent. It, it, between and it like totally parallels the testosterone changes over the course of development. Yeah, yeah, it's young men. I mean, when yeah. people talk about, for example, uh, the p p shootings, uh, overwhelming by men, they're overwhelmingly by men, of course, but people often forget the fact that it's young men. We don't That's have right. an epidemic of 50-year-olds gunning each other down the streets. We don't. I mean, and, but that's also, if those young men are not invested in children or invested in 
wives or girlfriends and have that kind of domestic that they are more likely to be swept up in the in 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 testosterone which is why i mean this is a separate issue and i don't want you don't need to weigh in on this but i do think that some of the the problems with violence in in certain parts of urban america are related to collapse of families and the fact that young men are not really bound up in the role of fatherhood but are more wrapped up yeah. in the in, in in the role of of being a stud and being a, a a man and being that kind of uh that that role for testosterone and and understanding that means that we have to pay particular attention to young men right i mean they they they're the people among whom testosterone is likely to create the most harm to other people yes and but so it's it's the way that you're conceptualizing this is interesting because we know that the violence trends parallel the testosterone highs and lows but like you pointed out which is a fantastic point it also parallels the trajectory of men um, having families and kids and kind of mellowing out because they have families and kids and aren't out searching for a mate or for the resources to attract mates. So there's also why even for example- Cultural and biological reasons, you know, and or influences and they're working together in these really complicated ways. And what we're illustrating, I hope, is that you can't, like you said earlier, you it, we can't, um, approach this as though it's one set of influences or the other and everybody's got you know staking out their territory and duking it out i just I wish that that would end and that there wouldn't be any political relevance to having one view or the other but that everyone would appreciate what is totally obvious to evolutionary biologists which is that genes and culture are always work together and genes are expressed in an environment and there's no separating generally you know there's really no separating the two especially for these complex behaviors that are obviously also affected by our environment and so one of the things that always struck me uh, picking up on this theme about the study in universities of 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 sex uh, of difference between men and women or uh, gender studies for example um there is the assumption the premise of gender studies is uh, and 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 critical gender theory and critical queer theory is that there is no biological impact on the difference between men and women at all. That everything is socialized from the minute you're born, and that uh, and that biology is effectively irrelevant. And in fact, what what has really just kind of staggered me over the last few years is we have book after book being published by people insisting that the science says. The testosterone has no impact. Uh, uh, that 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 everything is socialized, and I just I I don't know how people publish these things. I mean, I I don't know how this stuff I is, do. and 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 a lot of this stuff was published in major newspapers and treated seriously, yeah. and and but really as you if you don't know how it gets published, you don't know why it's published. I mean, well, I'm but what's you the go, public you tell reception? Me. No, what's the how do people receive that stuff? Right. I mean, a lot of people are like, yes, yes, that's right. That feels good. That feels right. It it feels liberal. It feels open. It feels accepting of differences. It just feels good, I think, to because biology feels threatening and deterministic and that somehow it uh, endorses 
bad behavior and inequality. And all of that is wrong, of course, but that takes kind of a sophisticated understanding of nature and nurture and, and people don't have sophisticated understandings. So if you have a social agenda, you're going to take the easier route, right? Which is no, yeah. we're all the same. So culture and patriarchy, we're, we're going to have to, you know, dismantle the patriarchy and that'll fix the problem. Which of course, yeah. is dismantling the patriarchy, some simple endeavor, is that, you know, easier to accomplish than castration or whatever people think the well, you biological could, you could solution would be? You could look at it in several ways. So, for example, there's no question that culture and society held women back for a very long time with horrible patriarchal restrictions, yeah. um, with restrictions on the jobs they could do, with educational restrictions. And that this kind of ended, or at least began to end in the West anyway, and certainly not true across the world, you know, sometime in the 60s and 70s when more and more women all over the course of the 20th century and increasingly now, in which most of the formal barriers to women doing whatever the hell they want to do in the West has have been removed. And we see an incredible uh, success of women in society, uh, and certainly in education in particular. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the power of women now on, in colleges and graduate schools in all sorts of areas is really quite stunning. Um, uh, yeah. So we can see that ending the social, understanding the socialization element of this is important, and we can do things to make it more possible that more people, regardless of their sex, can achieve whatever they want to achieve. And that's, that's happened and it's happening. There may be more to go. We don't know. But the point of this is to say it's not infinite. <laughs> that there is not an infinite thing. We can't do infinite things with the nature that we're given. We can make it better. Uh, we can also make it worse, but we can't make it perfect. And I think that's what people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear there are some broad restrictions on how we can bring about heaven on earth. <laughs> Those restrictions are in our genes and in our biology and in our bodies that we're not going to change the essential nature of men and women. We, we can change the way they interact and we can mitigate the worst aspects and we can encourage the best aspects of both, but we're not going to get rid of that difference. Yeah, I... <laughs> that was it's, a big sigh, no, Carol. Well, it's because it's such a big, complicated question. And my overarching feeling is that we must understand reality and how mm. it works first and foremost. And the way mm. that we describe reality is going to have no bearing on what reality actually consists of. And as a scientist, I don't want this massive degree of interference in my efforts to understand how the world works, because I'm a firm believer that it is through understanding reality that we can best determine how to create the kind of world that we want. Of course, we're going to dis disagree on what that, how that world should look or how our culture should look or who should get paid what, or should there be equal representation in you know, males and females in engineering or trans rights or anything else. We might disagree, but let's stop fighting about the science in order to try to make our point about the way that we want the world to be. So, so yeah, I, I don't know what my ultimate point here is other than I'm frustrated <laughs> by those books and articles that you mentioned, um, partly because people embrace them so readily and unquestioningly because the message seems to be hopeful that we can achieve equality 
And I just, I don't see it that way at all. What's hopeful to me is when we make discoveries about the world and use that information in the most sophisticated way possible to figure out how to improve our lives. Is it that we have a hard time seeing differences just as differences as opposed to one's better and one's worse? Uh, so for example, I think the, the whole question of men better than women or women is an absurd question. It, it's just stupid. Uh, it, it's a bit I like the, the idea that it's some race in, inferior or superior to other. Right. It's literally absurd. It's, it's an insane way of looking at the world. Um, but it does suggest an extreme insecurity around human difference that people just don't want to quite grapple with. Now, you teach Harvard students, so they're, 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 they're being fed this all the time. I mean, this is something that they're, they're taught before they get to your class. They're already... Yeah, yeah. So I'm fascinated by how do they respond to these, these, this, these, these, this reality? And how do they... Because, I mean, let me talk about an anecdote you talk about. When you first... And this is this was fascinating to me when you were when you were first in a class where they connected testosterone to sexual assault. Um, you were really distraught, partly because you had experienced that kind of horrible male aggression, uh, but your emotions overtook you, and and for reasons that are completely understandable. But you eventually came around to realize that was kind of a, a sort of not thinking rationally and that that was a not exactly the the right response to that am i paraphrasing that correctly yeah or, no or? that's right and this was a really pivotal moment in my training as a graduate student and i will never ever forget it and i get goosebumps and feel emotional when i talk about it and i tell my students uh every year i tell my students about this because i want them to know that emotional responses to what they're learning are okay. It's okay to feel offended. It's okay to feel sad. And for me, so this was a, a class on the evolution of human sexuality. It was one of my first uh, graduate student seminars. We read a paper on the evolution of rape in the scorpion fly. And the suggestion in the paper, and I'm not saying that this suggestion is correct, but it was more about entertaining the hypothesis. The hypothesis was that uh, human rape is an adaptation, uh, particularly for men who, which is kind of a, a mechanism that uh, can be activated in men who are unable to accumulate the resources that they need to secure a mate. And it was my turn to talk about the paper. I remember it vividly. And I, there, were, uh, there was a male professor, there was a couple female graduate students and a couple male graduate students. And I was upset and angry. And I, it was my turn to talk. And I was nervous about being at Harvard. I, you know, you know my, I told you what my background is. I didn't feel I belonged there. And I was gonna get you know, outed and discovered as their, you know, the, mis the admissions mistake. And uh, so I said, this guy is an asshole. And I was upset. And um, the professor kept saying to me, look at the data. Look at, he just said over and over, look at the data, look at the data. And he was respecting me as a scientist instead of this emotional woman. And I learned in that moment that I could accept my emotions and my strong reaction, sort of put it to 
to the side for a moment to try to analyze this guy's argument. And I'm still not sure if the argument was correct, but I could analyze it even though I was upset, even though I found it offensive. And that to me is what we need to do as scientists. That's looking for the truth. And I found that empowering. So I share that with my students. And it opens up avenues for them too to question their own responses. And the way I lead my classes is we're all in this together. I'm learning this stuff with you. I wanna hear your arguments. I wanna hear your challenges. I wanna hear your questions. If you disagree with the way I'm interpreting something, let me have it. Let's really use critical thinking uh, to figure out how things work. They come in with the biases that you're talking about. But they ultimately, I think partly because I'm so kind of raw and emotional and they know that I care about people, they don't think that I that my views are a product of, you know, um, endorsing bad behavior or something or that I, I'm agenda driven. Um, they really think that that I'm just doing my best to understand how the world works and they're coming with me. And I know that they appreciate it. They've told me very explicitly that they are so glad that someone is teaching a class on ideas that are now controversial and that they have the opportunity to really dive into the science and talk about it and try to understand it. Um, and that, that is, their objections that is, are welcome. So that is, I mean, to me, that is what liberal education is. It is not about suppressing feelings. It's about going through feelings and subjecting them nonetheless to examination. Right. Um, always examination. And they're not being questions that are bad. There are no bad questions. Uh, there are only bad answers. <laughs> and, uh, and I felt this out. I mean, for example, I'd often been taught that, or I'd heard around, that the gay, gay boys were turned gay by their mom, moms. That somehow there was an overly protective mother, a distant father. And I saw a lot of that pattern in my own life and in many other gay men. But this, of course, is a and and the, some of the key uh, proponents of this are people called reparative therapists who believed, following Freud, that you could psychoanalytically uh, cure people of homosexuality. So what did I right. do? I read and read their stuff. Yeah. I wanted to see whether they had anything. Because even if it were true, it certainly, if, if it were true, it turns out, to almost certainly not be, it might be a, there might be a shard of truth in that. There might be a shard of truth in it. You can't rule it out altogether. But it's very complicated. And in fact, even so, it's pretty fixed by the age of three, so far as we can tell, et cetera, et cetera. It's fascinating, but it was incredibly emotionally difficult for me to read and think about people who were making arguments that made me somehow a freak or, or somehow uh, uh, kind of ran with the grain of a certain kind of ugly stereotype about gay men, mamas, boys, and all the rest of it that we were defensive about. Right. But I felt like most phobias and fears, you confront it rather than run away from it. And you look at it dispassionately and, and you see what you think is true. And that itself is the real empowerment. It is, it is getting through the feelings to see reason. And that to me, what, what I worry about our culture um, deep is that the feelings are overwhelming the reason. Not only that, the feelings are beginning to suppress reason and to stigmatize it in a way that is really dangerous for our understanding of reality and would lead us to make bigger mistakes in trying to 
correct or reform reality. But that seems to me is not yeah. dead at Harvard. You're still there. You give me hope, my old, 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 oh, old alma mater. I hope I will be able to keep my job after the book comes out. Um, so. <laughs> just, uh, just think of David, David Reich at the, at the, in the, the geneticist. He, he survived um, occasionally oh, yeah. pointing no, out of some department. truth. Yeah. No, he's, uh, great. He's, great. He, he's another one who seems to me devoted to just the truth um, and an open discussion. Um, Can I just say, pick up on yeah, that? Please. I just one thing you said about um, not running away from fear, mm. because when you run away from fear, it just gets bigger and bigger. And I just like what you said about confronting it and trying to understand, because that gives you a sense of control and mastery. And you're better able to make decisions for your life when you understand something instead of hide from it. So. Yeah, but it's but at the same time, it is perfectly understandable, for yes. example, that many women who have been condescended to or talked over or pushed aside or not had their work um, valued sufficiently um, will be very sensitive about studies that show that men tend to be slightly more aggressive and this is part of their nature, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they shouldn't be. Uh, right. it, it, it can all be true. <laughs> it can all, everything is true so long as it isn't taken for anything more than it is. In other words, it's, it's yeah. men can be and often are and have been in the past assholes in many, many different ways. And you're right about that, dude, probably. You call it an asshole. But still, no. a lot of men haven't. A lot of men haven't. And, and so you were on Rogan and... Yeah. You both yeah. cried. We cried a Why lot. Why did you cry? He cried because he just feels like men have been so fucking trashed in the public culture that, that there's this horrible uh, prejudice. It's a prejudice against men that, that has been spread to kids and young men in a way that I see my brother, for example, who's really just been completely turned off, feels resentful, angry. Uh -huh. Um, I'll just say while you're coughing, I'll just say that um, Joe Rogan is just a very emotional guy. And he really, we, and I'm an emotional woman, and we were just sort of picking up on each other's mm. sensitivities and kind of feeding off of each other. And both, it was actually, I thought it was beautiful that I'm he's sure it so was. raw and open, and he's a caring, empathetic person. People don't agree with everything he says, but he's trying to be as honest and open as possible. And I think that's, and that's why he's need. so popular. He's so popular for those reasons. Yeah. And and also he's obviously not ashamed of being a dude. Is it's very <laughs> duty. The whole the whole show is like dudes. Yes. And yes, it's all about eating red so. meat and and pumping up in the gym and all the other dudishness. Yeah. That 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 I find so attractive, <laughs> but uh, yeah. maybe that maybe I, I even though I'm not part of it, I I I always found the rugby team relatively irresistible, even in my high school. <laughs> uh, even though they found me eminently resistible, and uh, oh. and, and I never dared to even mention uh, mention any interest. Um, but nonetheless, I I I I wouldn't want to ban rugby. Um, however, I do not want to be participating in it. Um, yeah. Carol, thank you for doing this. Um, Thank you for helping us understand men and not condemn them. And thanks for the work you're doing at Harvard. The book is T, The Story of Testosterone, the Hormone that Dominates and Divides Us by Carol Hooven. She's fantastic. The book is really interesting. Please read it. And 
grapple with your feelings as you read it. And let's keep our conversation going, Carol. We can have you back on at some point and uh, talk some more and stay in touch, please. Thank you so much for having me. I hope to see you again. You're so welcome. All right, next week, even more excitement. Uh, We're talking about fathers and sons. Uh, We'll see you then. Bye-bye.